subject today is resurrection people. All right, resurrection people. And um, this is something that I, I heard in a podcast that I've been listening to recently. And um, for whatever reason, when those two words like made their way into my ears, um, something just kind of churned within me. There, there was something that kind of connected and clicked with those words. And so immediately I got on my phone, I, I put those in my notes, and I began this journey of trying to understand what exactly that means. Like what exactly it would mean for us to truly be resurrection people. And so that's what I want to, to talk to you about Today Again, today is a special day. We get to celebrate what this is ultimately about. We get to think on these things, reflect on these things. But honestly, when I began to prepare this message, the thing that really um, stood out to me most is, even for my own life, I found myself not wanting to just think about these things, not wanting to just reflect on these things, but wanting to understand how they actually apply to my life. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't want to just think about them and allow them to go through my head. I want to understand what this means for me, what it would actually look like to take root within my heart. And so that's what I want to dig into today. One of the ways that we can begin that journey to relate to these stories, especially as we look to the Gospels, is simply by looking at the people that were surrounding Jesus during his time on earth. I don't know if you've ever done this. It's helpful for me. But as you read through the Gospels and the different events that are taking place, sometimes it's helpful to just kind of empathize and, and like put yourself in the shoes of the people surrounding Jesus. Like what would they have been thinking during certain moments? What, what would they have been feeling at certain times? What would their perspective have, have truly been in those moments? Sometimes that allows us to kind of dig into the story in a way that we wouldn't normally do. And of course, we know Jesus had an impact on a lot of different people throughout his life, right? Men, women, children, we see crowds of hundreds. We see crowds of thousands, many people whose lives were impacted by him. But we also know that there's a group that he seemed to pull in a little bit closer to himself. And we call these guys the disciples. We read an awful lot about them throughout the New Testament. These are men that spent the better part of three years with Jesus. And when you think about it, three years really isn't all that long a time. In fact, I would bet that you could probably go in your mind um, to somebody that you had a relationship with in the past that was three or more years long, but is now a distant memory. Like you hardly even remember what that was about or what that was like. And, and so three years isn't all that long until you begin to understand what happened within those three years between Jesus and his disciples. Like you have to understand that, that these are guys that got to stand there and watch as Jesus miraculously healed people right in front of their eyes. Like, like it's hard for us to comprehend, but they got to stand there and watch over and over again as he heals people. They got to sit there and listen to wisdom and truth and revelation with authority that had never been seen or heard before. They got to hear it with their own ears. In fact, they were even there at times when Jesus literally raised people from the dead. 
Like, like we're, we're talking about unbelievable, amazing things that these guys got to witness firsthand. And so even though it was only three years long, there was certainly a special nature to the relationship that they had with him. And yet, as we read through the events that this weekend represents, these disciples, the, the ones that were closest to him, don't exactly act like you might expect. Their, their responses to the things that are going on, their reactions to the things that are happening are probably not what you might predict from them. And so what I wanna do at the beginning here is, is just kind of make our way slowly through a timeline of the final hours, the final days of the Easter story so I can show you what I mean when I say this. And so we're gonna start off in Mark chapter 14. And as we stumble upon this scene that we're about to read, this is the evening before the crucifixion, okay? So we're talking roughly eight to 10 hours before Jesus is to be crucified. So the clock is ticking. This is coming up very, very quickly. And this is where we pick up starting in verse 32. Read along with me. It says, they came to a place named Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little bit beyond them and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So let's stop at this point and let's begin to talk about what exactly we just read so we can understand exactly what it is that is happening. And so let's start with this. As I mentioned, this is only a few hours before Jesus is about to go through the worst experience that you can possibly imagine, right? I, I mean, we are very close to this taking place. And so what he does is he takes his closest friends, and he goes to this garden where he is going to begin to pray and prepare for what is ahead. To the best of his ability, he's going to get ready for what is ahead of him. Now, of course, Jesus knows what is coming. And in fact, in this moment, he knows who is coming. And so he asks his disciples this. He says, just keep watch for me so that I can seek the Father for the things that are ahead. I just, I just need you to, to keep cover for me. I just need you to have my back as I prepare for this. Now, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, by this point in the lives of the disciples, 
they have already seen Jesus do so many miraculous things. In fact, so much so that at the end of the book of John, who was one of the disciples, he says there aren't enough books in the world to contain it all. Like, like there's simply too much for us to write it all down. They have seen more, they've experienced more than we could ever imagine. And to add to that, we know that at least Peter by this point has already declared that Jesus is the Messiah. So, so this is huge, okay? The, the one that has been predicted for thousands of years, he is here, he is in our midst. Peter believes this, which probably means the rest of them have a pretty good idea as well. So I want you to think about what they know of this man by this point in the story. They have seen him perform all of these miracles. They have heard him blow their minds with all of this wisdom and revelation. He is literally proving himself to be the Messiah right in front of their very eyes. And yet there's something in particular that really stands out about the scriptures that we just read. Something that I would have thought the disciples would have picked up on pretty clearly. And that is, this account tells us that Jesus came to them distressed and troubled. He came to them distressed and troubled. Now that might seem like one of those scriptures that you can just kind of read right past, not a big deal. He was troubled. Okay. But again, keep in mind who it is that we're talking about. In fact, remember that we're talking about a guy who just years before this, while the waves of the Sea of Galilee are about to capsize the boat and the disciples are freaking out, this is the guy who is sleeping at the bottom of the boat. And in fact, when they go and get him, he wakes up and with three words, he quiets the sea. This is who we're talking about. This is a guy who, who they witnessed being attacked at every turn by the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day. And every single time he handles it with calm and he handles it with ease. And now all of a sudden, this same guy is distressed. This same guy that we're talking about, he's troubled. Now, wouldn't you think that, that the disciples would take notice of this behavior from Jesus? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think that they would realize something is off here? Now, I'm admittedly not the most observant guy in the world, but I would have thought that they would have realized something is different with our friend. He's not acting like himself at this time. In fact, it gets even worse when you consider that just hours before they met in the garden, Jesus is having his last supper with these guys. And as they're enjoying their meal, he at one point straight up tells them that a betrayal is coming. In fact, he tells his disciples directly, I'm about to be betrayed. And when this happens, you guys are gonna scatter like sheep. You're literally gonna go running for your lives. That's what is about to happen. Now, to no, to no surprise, Peter, if you know him at all, he's brave, he's courageous. He stands up and he says, I'm not doing that. The rest of them might do that. No way, I'm gonna do that. To which Jesus responds, not only will you scatter, but you will openly deny me three times. So let's pause for a second and maybe do a bit of a, of a reset here so we understand exactly what is going on. At the final supper, Jesus looks them in their eyes and he says, I'm going to be captured. You guys are gonna run and scatter like sheep. And then just a few hours later, we're talking about the very next thing that happens is he's distressed, he's grieving, and he's in anguish. Now, I would think, given all the information provided to us here, these disciples of his would be on high alert at this point, right? 
Jesus has, has warned us. He's now acting a little bit funny. Something is up. We have to be ready for something. And instead, what we just read is that these men, on three different occasions, after three different warnings, can't even keep their eyes open long enough to simply keep watch. They can't even stay awake long enough to have this guy's back. And sure enough, by the time he's warned them the third time, the soldiers arrive, he is arrested, he's taken into the city to be put on trial. Now, what we see over the next three and a half days or so, as Jesus is put through the worst betrayal in the history of mankind, as he's tortured, as he's mocked, as he's beaten, as I said before, the ones closest to him don't exactly act like you might expect. In fact, as the events surrounding Easter slowly develop, these disciples of his go almost completely silent. It's actually alarming as you read through this how much they go off the radar. And let me prove this to you. Now, these are the Good Friday events. And so I want you to lean into this. I want you to, to put yourself in the story to understand exactly what is happening. After Jesus is arrested, what happens next is he's put on trial six different times. Six different times he goes through this. And the only account of any disciples being present for any of those was when Peter fulfilled his prophecy and denied Jesus three times. As the whole world is chastising him, screaming obscenities in his face throughout six different trials, there is not a disciple in sight. No one to stick up for him, no one to have his back, no one to support him. They are gone. Now, after the six trials are complete, and just for the record, there's found to be zero evidence of wrongdoing on the part of Jesus. They deem him to be guilty and he is to be crucified. So what they do is they immediately take him into the palace. They dress him up in purple clothing. A crown of thorns is plastered onto his head and he's beaten to a pulp by the Roman soldiers. He's mocked incessantly. He's slapped in the face. He's spit upon. And not a single time could he peek over to the 12 that he chose for just a little bit of strength. Not one time could he make eye contact with one of his friends so that he could muster up a little bit of strength. They were gone. Now, once they had torn his body apart and he had already endured more pain than imaginable, Jesus is, is then given a cross that he must carry from the palace to a place called Golgotha. Now, despite the many depictions that you may have seen around this event, historically, prisoners did not have to carry the whole cross, okay? Typically, they were only responsible for carrying the horizontal piece of it, and yet even that one piece of wood could weigh upwards of 150 pounds. And so as you can imagine, somebody in Jesus's condition by this point simply couldn't hold the, the weight of that all by himself, right? And so scripture records that at one point in the journey, the soldiers have to call in some assistance. So they pull somebody in along the roadside to help Jesus with this endeavor. Now at this point, this is probably when you expect one of the disciples to come running onto the scene, right? They see Jesus is in excruciating pain. They run onto the scene. They get underneath that thing. They help him carry his cross but of course, that's not what we see. In fact, it's not a disciple that helps our savior that day. 
It's a, a random spectator who was in town to celebrate the Passover. And so this random spectator, he comes to Jesus, he helps him carry the cross where they make their way to that hill where Jesus is tortured to the point of death. As you read through the accounts of this in the gospels, I don't know how your stomach can't turn. It's, it's hard to even read the details of what happens as he's laughed at, as he's mocked, as he's brutalized. And after six hours of absolute agony, he finally declares it is finished. The greatest sacrifice in the history of mankind, the sacrifice on your behalf was complete. It is finished. Now what would follow as evening approached is honestly one of the most underrated parts of this story. Because what happens is a man that was in the crowd that day decided that he needed to, to step in and care for the body of Christ. And so he steps up, he boldly goes to Pilate, regardless of the consequences, and he requests to take the body and give it a proper burial. So much to his surprise, Pilate agrees to this. So he takes the body of Christ, he wraps it in linen cloth, and he sets him safely inside the tomb. Now listen, not only was this gentleman not one of Jesus's 12 disciples, but the only people who were even watching to see where the body was placed was Mary Magdalene and the mother of Jesus. Listen, not only did his friends not take care of his body, they didn't even make it a point to see where it was laid to rest. And so after the proper burial took place, after the stone was sealed tightly, the days began to roll by. Now this is where things get even more interesting to me. Because I could swear that Jesus told these guys what was gonna happen next. I'm almost sure that as I read through the gospels, he makes it very clear to them that on the third day, he was going to rise from the grave. Let's make sure that I'm reading this right. Matthew 16, 21, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, check, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, check, that he must be killed, check, and on the third day be raised to life. Okay, so perfectly clear, right? We're, we're on the same page. So the disciples on that third day, as morning approaches, surely they are gathered around the tomb in celebration, right? I mean, there's excitement, there's anticipation that's building, just waiting for the resurrection of their friend Jesus. They are ready. And yet instead, this is what we go on to read in John chapter 19. The doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. The doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now, I'm sorry to belabor the point here, but it's amazing to me that at every single step, at every point of Jesus's trial, his crucifixion, his burial, the ones who were supposedly closest to him completely failed him. As he's going through his toughest hour, when the whole world is against him, these guys are coddled up in fear of what might happen to them. They were afraid. They, they were weak. In fact, I don't know how you call them anything but cowards at this point in this story. 
And yet that's really confusing to me because aren't these the same exact guys that less than two months later become the founders and the leaders of the first church? Weren't they soon after applauded for their boldness and how they preached and how they advanced the gospel? In fact, history shows that these same cowardly men, with only one exception, went on to die horrific, sacrificial deaths on behalf of their beliefs. Matthew was stabbed to death. James was stoned. Andrew was crucified. Peter was crucified upside down, all for the sake of Christ. And so I'm left a little bit confused here because these people are huddled up in the house, afraid for their lives as Jesus is being beaten, as he's being crucified as he's laid in the tomb. And yet they ended up giving their lives for the very same cause. And so I'm left to ask myself, what happened? What, what was it that, that changed things? It obviously wasn't the cross. That had already happened and they're still in the house with the doors locked, afraid for their lives. How did they go through such a radical transformation? Well, because the story wasn't complete. This is what we read in Luke chapter 24 starting in verse one. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. See, listen, what changed everything for the disciples was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It changed everything from being weak to being strong, from living in fear to living with boldness, from being cowards to sacrificing everything. And the thing that changed it was that he has risen. Yes. Now listen to this. This is so important for you to understand. Had Jesus simply died and stayed in the tomb, there would have been no revival that took place a few months later in the streets of Jerusalem. There would have been no church to be established soon after. In fact, the chosen leaders would have still been in the house with the doors locked, afraid for their lives. But the resurrection changed everything for them. The grave was defeated, power over darkness, boldness beyond measure. It changed everything. Because see, the truth of the matter is the resurrection is the absolute bedrock of our faith. I'm telling you right now, it, it's the pinnacle. It's the foundation of who we are. And we need to remind ourselves of that. We, we need to remind ourselves of what scripture says about this event. In fact, it tells us it's the reason that we know Jesus is who he claimed to be. Romans chapter one, verse four says this, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. It was confirmation. The evidence was in, he was indeed the Messiah. It's the message that the first church declared to the world as good news in Acts four. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's the message that Paul delivers as ultimate hope in Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
See, listen, it's, it's the message the first converts heard. It's the message that Paul sends out to the entire church. It's the message we receive today. Christ died for our sins, was buried in a tomb, but was raised to life on the third day. This is the power of the Easter story. This is what changed everything for them. This is what should change everything for us. And so this is where we need to wrap back to the beginning of what I said. Because at the beginning I said, I don't want us to just think about these things. I don't want us to just reflect on these things. What I wanna do is understand how this applies to my life. What I wanna do is understand how this should impact me as I move forward. And so this is how I wanna close things today. I wanna make this personal. I want us to understand exactly how we ought to respond to this. And so let me start with this. Please lean into this. I think for so many of us, our story relates to the disciples' story so much more than we think. There are so many more correlations going on here than we would even like to admit because we can read through these events and even scoff at times because of how seemingly spineless they were in these moments. But the truth is, as we look inward, their story looks very, very similar to ours. Now, what exactly do I mean when I say that? Well, I think for a lot of us, listen so closely, we have done a lot of clinging to the cross. We've done a lot of of singing about this. We've done a lot of talking about this. We've probably even cried tears because of this. And that's beautiful. That, That is entirely appropriate. But unfortunately, that right there is where our story ends. We're clinging to the cross every day of our lives, yet we've forgotten to turn the page to what the rest of the story has to offer. And as a result, if we're being honest, our faith and our lives very much reflect that. Because here we sit inside the house with the doors locked in fear of what lies ahead. We've read the scriptures about joy. We've read the scriptures about power, but but that's not true of our story. We see messages all over the New Testament about life and and freedom and victory, but these have become words that spill out of our mouths yet hold no true meaning or no true application for our lives. But see, here's the deal, and you need to get this. Like you need to wrap your heart around this. We are not a people who are ultimately marked by death. We are a people who are ultimately marked by life. Because see, the full gospel message is not wrapped up ultimately in the fact that Christ died for us. It's wrapped up ultimately in the fact that on the third day, he rose to life. He rose to life. That's what changed everything. And here's the key for us. In that same way, that's exactly what he wants for us. It's exactly what he has for us. That's exactly what he has opened up for our lives today. And if you don't believe me, let's go directly to scripture, Romans chapter six, verse four. Paul says this, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, so we too might walk in newness of life. I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, if you go through the Bible app, I would encourage you to highlight that, to bold that across your entire life that we might walk in newness of life. 
He continues in verse five. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. A few chapters later, chapter eight, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. These are promises in scripture about us. See, when I heard those two words, resurrection people, this is what it was talking about. This is what it meant right here. A people who are made new, a people who are made free, a people who are truly alive in the best sense of that word. That's who we are to be. I really do think in so many ways as Christians, as the church, we've gotten this thing a little bit wrong, guys. There's, there's an imbalance that is in play here because we've become so consumed by the message of the cross that, that we get a little bit stuck there. And I would obviously never want to diminish or undermine the work of the cross. Don't mishear me at all. But here's the thing. This is the God's honest truth. We've become a people who understand the concept of grace. We've become a people who understand the concept of forgiveness. In fact, we could probably even rip off a definition of justification for you if that's what you want. But see, the problem is what we don't understand is the concept of life. What we don't understand is the concept of victory. What we don't understand is the concept of power. This is what we're missing out on. See, we get so caught up in this idea of salvation as if that's what this whole thing is about. And what happens is we get stuck in the grave. Our sins are forgiven, the price is paid for, but that's the end of the story for us. And there's a big problem with that. The problem is that wasn't the end of the story for Jesus. He's not still in the grave. That wasn't the end of the story for the disciples. They're not still locked up in that house. And it's the same for us. We cannot stay in the grave. We cannot stay locked up in the house. He has something so much greater. He has something so much more powerful for our lives. Here's another scripture that I would encourage you to just put across your entire life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Listen closely. See, God didn't bring you into his story to save you. He brought you into his story to awaken you. To, to resurrect you to new life, to resurrect you to a new future, to a new purpose, to a new power. There's so much more going on here than we realize on the surface. And see, this is why it shouldn't surprise us when scripture says that we are more than conquerors. This is why we shouldn't be shocked when Paul says, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you because this is who we are. This is God's desire for you. And it was all made possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what opened the door that we could have this hope, that, that we could have this story, that we could be this type of people, resurrection people. Yes. See, this is what God has for us. That this is the calling that is on each one of our lives, that we would truly be resurrection people, people that move forward with, with power, people that move forward with direction, people that just lavish love across the entire world. I'm telling you, he's not done with your story. You cannot stay in the grave. There's so much more. So here's what I would encourage you guys to do. And I want you to take this seriously. 
as you go throughout just this next week, just, just the next seven days, here's what I would encourage you to do. I want you to think about the resurrection of Christ more than you ever have before. Just, just for the next week, just for the next week, I want you to focus on that as your primary, as your priority. And I just wonder if at the end of the week, if, if you don't feel just a little bit more free, if you, if you don't feel just a little bit more joyful, if you don't feel just a little bit more optimistic about what he has for your life. It's time that we understand who we truly are. It's time that we understand what he's truly done for us. There's a new future ahead and it's about time that we get it. Amen? Amen. Please stand with me. If you haven't um, read through these accounts in the gospels, I would encourage you to do that at some point today. It's pretty quick reading, won't take you all that long, but it really is amazing to see the things that Jesus does. And it really is alarming to, to see what his closest friends and followers do as a response. It's one of the most amazing things as we look back into history. It, it is honestly one of the greatest confirmations of the truth of Christ is to see the life change that happened in the disciples. Why, why would these guys go on to do what they did if they hadn't truly seen the risen king? Why would these guys go, go on to lay everything on the line if they hadn't personally seen Christ alive again? This is the truth. This is our hope. And if we could just grab hold of that for ourselves, what a change it would make. There's a reason Paul puts this in Romans 10 when he says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's a reason that's in there because that, that right there means everything. That you might capture that in your heart. Sure, he went to the cross he endured the worst pain and suffering we could imagine. But on the third day, he rose. And I want that to mark our lives. I want us to be a people who look to that every single day, walk in that every single day, that we might have newness of life.